Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Fedor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese, Alexis McLeod, and Sarah Tyson. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Brian Earp and Julian Sabulescu, co-authors of Love Drugs, The Chemical Future of Relationships, which is just out from Stanford University Press. Earp is Associate Director of the Yale Hastings Program in Ethics and Health Policy at Yale University, and Sabulescu is Uehiro Chair in Practical Ethics at the University of Oxford. So consider a couple with an infant or two whose lives have become so harried and difficult, the marriage is falling apart. Would it be ethical for them to take oxytocin to help them renew their emotional bonds? Or would this be an unethical evasion of the hard work that keeping a marriage going requires? What if someone has sexual desires that they consider immoral? Should they be able to take a drug to suppress those desires? Or alternatively, can society force them to? Debates about the ethics of using drugs for enhancement rather than treatment usually focus on the individual, such as doping in sports. But in love drugs, Earp and Sabulescu consider the case for using drugs to alter our love relationships. They note that drugs that alter sexual desire and attachment are already available, although are restricted. What is needed, they argue, is more research into the interpersonal effects of drugs and more discussion of the ethics of their use for non-medical purposes. Let's turn to a fascinating interview on a complex topic with no easy answers. Hello, Julian and Brian. Welcome to New Books and Philosophy. Thanks for having us on. Hello. I'm looking forward to talking about your your new book, Love Drugs, The Chemical Future of Relationships. Um, uh, before we get into the book itself, maybe you could give us a bit about your backgrounds, you know, tell us a bit about uh, yourselves and then your philosophical interests, and then how the two of you came to write this book. Well, let's see. Julian, do you want to start first? The, the seed of the idea came from uh, some early work that Julian did with our colleague, Andrew Sandberg, and then I kind of came in to develop some of those ideas. So the story really starts with, with Julian. Okay. So I am originally a medical doctor, and then I did a, a PhD with Peter Singer. Um, and I, I've been interested in the sort of inter, intersection of science and, and ethics um, since the beginning of my career. And in the late 90s, I, I started working on ethics of genetics and it, it became apparent to me that, you know, there was a genetic contribution to intelligence and that in the future you'd be able to select embryos that were more likely to be intelligent. Um, and I started to write on issues around genetic selection and also enhancement. And, of course, those, those issues are writ large today. And initially my, my interest was around cognitive enhancement and then after that, I in the early around 2000, I became interested in enhancement in sport and and wrote on the prevalence of doping in sport and the need to to revise the um, the principles and the rules around doping. Uh, and then I began to think, well, actually, biology makes a contribution to you know everything that that matters uh, to all aspects of our personality and and also to um, at the way in which we approach relationships um, and, and indeed love. And around that time, my own marriage was dissolving and, you know, I started to ask questions, well, you know, how can people who, you know, have got on for so well should be able to get on suddenly fall out of love? And I started to study the, the biology and psychology and evolutionary history uh, around Love and remote relationships, and in two thousand and um, and eight, was it Brian that I wrote that first paper with Anders Sandberg? Yeah. yeah. Um, what was it? Two thousand and what? I think it was two thousand eight. I think you're right. Yeah. yeah. Um, I wrote the first paper on on how we might be able to use our increasing knowledge of biology and and genetics and neurochemistry to strategically affect our relationships. And and Brian became uh, in, involved with that fairly soon after. So over to you, Brian. 
Yeah. So I, my, my general background is that I, I uh, studied cognitive science and philosophy and, and came into learning more about ethics through my relationship with Julian. He brought me on at the Uhiro Center for Practical Ethics at Oxford, and I got to thinking about these practical ethical questions and, and enjoyed navigating between studying the science of a question and making sure I had a reasonable grasp of what was going on factually, but then always bringing it back to these normative questions. What what should we do? What would there be good reason to do, morally speaking, in a given situation? Um, I'd say that in, in terms of the project uh, that we've been working on together, the first paper really focused on the evolutionary history and the biology of love. And I think the, the reason for focusing on that is, is not to suggest that love just is down to, to neurochemistry or the biological dimensions of the phenomenon, but that that's an aspect of love that's received relatively short shrift uh, compared to the experiential dimensions of love, the, the psychology of love, and also the socio-historical conceptualizations of love that exist in different cultures. So when you look at the philosophy of love, a lot of it is a kind of conceptual analysis where philosophers say, you know, the, the, the key ingredients to what love is in some prescriptive sense, you know, they think this is how we should think about love is it involves, for example, uh, taking the other person's welfare as an end in itself, Sometimes they'll think it has to do with uh, a certain kind of uh, uh, romantic attraction if they want to carve off that, that particular type of love. Um, and so there's a lot of conceptual analysis. And then people in their everyday lives have their experiences about what it feels like to be in love. Um, and, and we just want to add you know, a third dimension to that, which is to say what, whatever it is that we're talking about, this complex phenomenon, it's going to have a biological aspect or dimension, an experiential psychological dimension, and also a socio-historical dimension. And let's make sure we're talking about all three of those aspects, especially since, you know, there are drugs that we, we are consuming today for other purposes that are, are having an impact on the biological aspects of love, but, but we don't tend to study the interpersonal effects of drugs. And so, you know, some of this might be something we could harness for enhancement purposes, and also some of the effects that drugs are having on uh, our romantic neurochemistry may be harmful and something that we should be studying for purposes of avoiding uh, ways in which we may be uh, disadvantaging ourselves romantically. So that's kind of the shape that this project has taken over the last number of years that we've been working on it together. Uh, excellent. So, um, I mean, Julian mentioned this, the, his sort of longstanding interest in various issues in cognitive enhancement, not just not just uh, like love or, any, or or that particular or interpersonal relations. Um, could you say a bit about the context of the whole debate on the ethics of cognitive enhancement? Just to kind of situate this this particular book in the in the wider context. Yeah, I mean, you know, on a sort of Darwinian view of of human beings, they're not made in the image of God. They evolved um, uh, to to survive and flourish in certain niches, um, and and on. On that picture, people don't have, you know, uniform characteristics. They vary in whatever characteristic you're talking about, height, you know, capacity to put on adipose tissue, uh, degree of empathy, understanding of other people's emotions and intelligence. And, and we're all familiar with the normal distribution curve of intelligence. And, you know, with most of those things, there's a significant genetic contribution around 50%, and it varies depending on the characteristic. Um, so it's not that genes and biology determine, you know, how intelligent you are or how empathetic or how altruistic, um, but they do have an influence and, and people vary and, and that variation has significant impacts. So, for example, in the area of in intelligence, um, you need an, an IQ of, I think, around uh, 92 or 95 to complete a tax return in the U.S., even though intellectual disability is defined way down at 70. So there's a lot of people with a, a low normal um, IQ that you know, probably through most of human history wouldn't have been a significant disadvantage, but is a significant disadvantage in a technologically advanced society. So um, the, the idea of the enhancement project is that we shouldn't accept just what nature delivers up and the natural inequality that, that nature provides. And when science affords us the opportunity of changing that, we should change it according to our values. So evolution only cares about survival and reproduction, but we care about happiness and uh, fulfilling our projects and 
keeping our relationships going. Uh, and, and science offers us the opportunity to start to strategically intervene in, in the natural lottery. Um, and, and I think the values which should guide that are a human well-being uh, or some uh, conception of, of, of moral behaviour or morality. So those two goals that Henry Sidgwick um, described in the, the dualism of practical reason, self-interest or morality. And so the Enhancement Project has been about seeing how in different aspects of our lives those values can, can change the way in which we use science and the regulations that are often put typically um, in, in front of that pursuit. Um, so it doesn't just apply to, to love or to happiness or to physical ability or cognitive ability. It even applies to, to our moral capacities, and I've also established this field of, field of, of moral enhancement. But probably the aspect of our life that matters most to us is love and our close personal relationships, and they probably have the greatest impact on our well-being. Um, so it, it's an extremely important area to get right what the science is, but then also to get right what the ethical principles should be that will govern the use of that science. Okay, good. Um... So yeah, so this particular case is is love um, and the use of drugs to, uh, you know, enhance in some broad sense. Uh, uh, although it can be um, helping somebody break up, right? I mean, that's one of the cases you give. But um, uh, could you say, you know, how do you define? love and how do you define drug for the purposes of your discussion sure i'll, I'll tackle that um it's a good question and it's an important question because uh, if we're talking about enhancing love we want to be clear about what chunk of reality we're trying to carve out and refer to and we take uh we take a broad account of love that's that's based off of the work of terry jenkins who's a, a metaphysician who wrote a book called what love is and she argues that love is essentially uh, what she calls a, a, a dual nature phenomenon. So there's a biological aspect or dimension to love. And then there's also the, the psychosocial aspect, which has to do with how it's experienced and also how it's, it's uh, conceived of and, and treated in, in given uh, social and historical uh, settings. And so uh, if, if you think of love as a biopsychosocial phenomenon, that's one way of, of, of just carving out what are the different dimensions that might be relevant? But then within, within each of those dimensions, you might want to do some further work to specify uh, what part of our biology is relevant or what part of our experiential lives uh, is relevant and also what are the relevant concepts in the culture. So in terms of biology, there are a number of different ways of talking about the, the biological underpinnings of what we experience as romantic love. But a, a common account suggests that uh, our, our ancestors would have these underlying uh, uh, neural, neural systems that are important for, for reproductive uh, uh, success, including a lust or libido system, which draws us toward a range of potential mating partners, which is important for our uh, uh, survival for, for obvious reasons as a species. Then we have a, uh, an attraction system, which, which narrows our attention down to a, a smaller range of potential mating partners. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the neurochemistry involved in this particular system is better and better described over the years. And uh, finally, there's an attachment system, which is important for uh, parent-children bonds uh, and, and also the romantic partnership between parents so that they'll stay together long enough to raise children uh, in the ancestral environment. And the thought is that this is the equipment with which we're all equipped under the hood uh, and then, you know, that's, that's, the, that's the necessary stuff you've got to have in place in order to have the feelings that we, we describe as love. But then, you know, how those feelings map on to a particular cultural system is going to depend on what's going on in the culture. So you might have a culture, for example, that doesn't recognize same-sex love as a proper form of love. So you might have, you know, uh, very similar things going on neurochemically. You've got, you know, adrenaline and excitement when you're with your partner and you, you can form uh, long-term attachments with them and so forth. So you've got all the biological stuff in place, but you might have social values and norms and concepts that exclude your biological uh, 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 phenomenon from membership in the category love. So when it comes to uh, the, the limitations on what counts as love from a, a sociocultural perspective, we tend to remain pretty agnostic. We don't want to 
tie ourselves to a particular philosophical count that's that's prescriptive about what should count as love. We tend instead uh, throughout the book to use love in a sort of common sense term to refer to romantic relationships that people experience as such and describe as such and, and to sort of take people at their word when they say I'm in love with someone or this is this is a romantic partnership. We try to stay pretty agnostic about that, but there are, of course, some common themes among different philosophical accounts, uh, some of which I mentioned earlier, you know, uh, uh, taking the other person, person's welfare as an end on its on its own, so not instrumentally for your own benefit, but because you you treat them as uh, as someone whose whose happiness is worth promoting uh, in its own right, um, and uh, uh, and then of course there's all the experiential aspects of love, which is what you get from you know poetry and pop songs and music and so forth, where people are trying to describe what it feels like to be in this bio psychosocial state. And uh, drugs. All right, that was only half of your question. So, uh, yeah, so drugs, drugs are, are chemicals. We say in the book they're just chemicals, but that's, that's not a full answer because uh, most people think of drugs as a, a, a subcategory of chemicals that are relatively easily taken into the body uh, and which have some kind of notable uh, uh, psychological or physiological effect. So you could think of food as a drug on that view. That's, that's not the... the prototypical example that people are thinking of, but food counts as a drug on this view. Um, and then more prototypical examples would include the sorts of drugs that we may use for medicine and also drugs uh, that are used for other purposes in society, sometimes recreationally or for spiritual enhancement or for, for whatever uh, the purpose may be. But that's what we think of when we talk about drugs. Okay. So, um, so the idea is uh, that Drugs can be used to enhance certain relationships um, uh, within certain constraints, right? So it's it's not as if you are advocating, you know, just give people a pill and that's going to solve their problem or whatever. Um, so can you can you say a bit about what sorts of relationships you have in mind? I mean, you mentioned as uh, your sort of strongest contender for drug-assisted therapy, uh, a, a couple that is, you know, married and happily married, then they have children and things start to fall apart. Um, yeah, I mean, but of course, there's a variety, there are a variety of different sorts of um, scenarios that you go through. So, so could you say a bit about what exactly the sort of enhancement, the sorts of relationships that you have in mind when you're talking about uh, the enhancement of, you know, the use of drugs in, uh, in love relationships. Just, just before Brian gives you his sort of favourite contenders, and I can give you mine, I think it's, it's just worth clarifying something that, that people might get a misperception about. When we're talking about love drugs, we're not talking about something that will affect all aspects of love. And there's so much that's been written on love that it's easy to get lost in the kind of mire of of volumes of different um, accounts. You, I, how I look at it is what we're primarily talking about is the aspect of love that we share with all other mammals. As Brian said, the last attraction attachment uh, systems. The, 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 the thing that, the, from the big picture, the thing that affects most people, not kind of fringe elements of the debate. And, you know, in that, in that regard, you can change parts of that. So you'll only ever be able to t change one aspect that will, will have other effects. But there isn't going to be, you know, an ability to globally affect love or make somebody fall in love. And that's, a, that's I think, at this point of fiction. But there might be something that can increase libido, can increase attachment or reduce attachment. Um, so it's about affecting aspects of ourselves that contribute to this basic phenomenon of love that, that makes the world go round and makes us have typically have offspring. Um, so, Brian, do you want to say what you think is the, the sort of the contenders for intervention on that background? Sure. I think uh, maybe one uh, constraint that we have in mind for, for at least a best-case scenario uh, of, of a relationship that might be worth enhancing would be a relationship that there's a, there's a good reason to want to stay in and to try to improve. So when, whenever you're thinking about intervening in a relationship and you can just set drugs aside, you know, just think of something like 
couples counseling or other ways in which we might try to intervene in the, the nature and the quality of love between ourselves and someone else. There's this, there's this prior question, which is, is this, a, is this a good relationship that we should work on? And in some cases, the answer is going to be no. If you have a relationship that's uh, characterized by abuse or violence or something like that, you might think that the, the right answer to that question is that this, this particular couple should, should not be together. And when you have cases of very serious incompatibility in terms of values, uh, uh, that might be another situation where just, uh, you know, finding some chemical glue to hold the couple together just for the sake of longevity of the relationship would be really misguided. And, and again, in the case of an abusive situation, that would be uh, really a disaster. So, so the first question is, you know, is this the sort of relationship that we think is worth working on? And I think not everybody's going to have the same answer to that. But if you, again, think of the case of, of couples counseling or marriage therapy, most people would think it's at least okay. It's at least permissible for couples that have enough in common, enough shared values who aren't, uh, you know, totally at opposite ends of, of the spectrum, uh, that they should try to work on their relationship if they, if they judge that that's best for them and that there's something uh, valuable worth preserving. And then the, the sort of model that we generally get to in the book is, is not uh, taking drugs in a vacuum of, of, of any kind, but rather were there, you know, if there were some drugs that could enhance or supplement the effects of these well-worn psychosocial measures that are already uh, common in our culture for intervening in relationships, then you then you you might want to be able to consider that in some cases. And so rather than speaking totally abstractly or, or hypothetically, we refer to the historical use of the drug MDMA, uh, which is known to, to pop culture as a party drug, but which was originally used as a therapeutic agent uh, as an adjunct to psychotherapy and, and, and including in the context of couples counseling up through the mid 1980s. Then the drug kind of leaked out and got used as a as a a, a recreational substance. And so it, it triggered a, a, a conservative response in the government to sort of a moral panic was set off and they listed the, the drug as a schedule one substance. But at the time, the therapeutic community and the scientists were using this drug as, a, as an agent to help people with uh, mental health issues and with their relationships. Uh, we're very concerned about this and thought that this was an unscientific move. This was done on the basis of kind of scary anecdotes rather than any consistent evidence that if used in the right way at the right dose in a, in a appropriate therapeutic environment, uh, the, the drug, it was going to be harmful. Um, they said, that's not what we're finding. And, and there's not good evidence of that. Uh, and, and, and so that was kind of where things left off in the, in the 1980s. Now it could just be a historical example, but the reason why we dwell on it a bit is that this drug, along with some other drugs like psilocybin from magic mushrooms, which is a different class of drug, that's more of a classical psychedelic, these are being brought back into mainstream medicine as uh, adjunctive treatments for post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, treatment-resistant depression, and other very serious mental health issues. And so here our argument is, you know, rather than just administering these drugs, even as adjuncts to psychotherapy, and measuring their effects just on individuals and their uh, mental health uh, symptoms, it's important to also understand how the administration of these drugs can affect interpersonal variables. And that's true, not just with these newfangled drugs, uh, but with, with any drug that we take for other purposes. I mean, one drug we talk about a lot in the book is selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which is the most commonly prescribed drug for uh, depression. And the issue there is that, you know, the drug doesn't know it's being used as an antidepressant pill. It's just a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, and it's doing all sorts of stuff. And some of the things that it's doing, we know about, like it has a very high risk of lowering libido for many people. And, you know, in many romantic relationships, that would probably be a harmful effect. Although, you know, in some cases, a lower libido might well be uh, a good thing in some subset of relationships. But our point just with any of these substances that we're talking about is that one, they shouldn't be administered ever kind of in a vacuum or at home or in somebody's basement. They would be in a psychotherapeutic context. It would be an adjunct to other measures that we are already comfortable with and have good reason to think can be helpful in some cases. And we should first ask that prior question, is this relationship one that it's worth working on? Okay, so well, that, that kind of gets to my sort of a, a question about the, the uh, you know, when it's not, use, using them not in a vacuum. Well, there's, there's a larger vacuum, which is not just the relationship itself, but of course the social, which you mentioned, the social cultural uh, context in which these uh, relationships take place. So, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, in some cultures, you know, uh, you know, homosexuality is frowned on and others it's fine. Um, 
Uh, there's lots of, you know, gender relationships within, you know, love relationships. Um, so there's all, all kinds of different sorts of relationships. Um, and I'm just wondering what sort of, what is your kind of moral, you know, overarching moral theory, you might say, about, you know, who, which of these relationships, uh, you know, should be eligible for using them and maybe which shouldn't. And just to, again, to make that less abstract, I mean, as you well know, there's there's been, you know, chemical castration, you know, uh, I mean, Alan Turing is probably one of the more famous cases of somebody who was gay and who was, um, you know, who had to take uh, drugs to, um, uh, you know, eliminate, well, I put that in quotes, eliminate his, his homosexuality. Um, now there's a, there's a case of a relationship where somebody, uh, in his case, of course it was, it was court ordered, but you know, other people who are growing up, say in a religious household, um, you know, want to eliminate their, um, their love for somebody of the same sex. Right. right. Or you might take somebody who is in an abusive relationship or somebody who is, who, who from the outside, you know, it, it looks abusive, but from the inside, they don't think of the person as being abusive or, or something. Um, what are the limits in that sense in, in terms of which, the, which are the sorts of relationships you think, uh, you know, or, or reasons for using drugs to either, you know, to continue a relationship um, uh, that you don't um, uh, condone? So, so or, maybe... or is it just like whoever wants, you know, whoever wants to do it, that's fine. I mean, my, my impression from the book is this is not a free-for-all. Anybody who wants to use them can use them as long as they're, it's part of therapy. Right? So just to... Just to put this in the context of, of a broader debate, I mean, you've, you've hit upon the hardest question and, and then I'll, I'll let Brian answer specifically. But the question is, how do we value a relationship or how do we decide what a good life for a person is? Is it in the eye of the beholder? Is it defined subjectively? Is it defined in terms of their religion? Is it determined by their society? Or are there objective criteria for evaluating lives or relationships and that's the crisis that we face today most people think that it's really in the eye of the beholder you know if you're happy with your abusive relationship well then that's a good relationship for you or if you're you know happy uh, being straight well then that's that's what's right for you um, it, and we don't we don't take a position on that because that's just such a deep question that nobody has really answered that. And it's going to apply not just to drugs, but to social interventions or to psychological interventions. So it's, it's, a, it's a very important question that bears upon the use of love drugs, but it's, it's actually a question that goes right through, you know, how we order society. Uh, for my, my take, and, and then I'm interested in Brian's, is that, you know, we need... We need subjective elements, but we also need some objective elements. Um, objective elements in, in terms of, of well-being are um, whether that intervention provides uh, rich and deep human relationships, promotes autonomy, promotes growth and development of talents, um, promotes creativity, um, promotes happiness. So when it, when you ask, you know, is it good for struggling a struggling couple with two young children to attempt to keep their relationship going um, with with love drugs um, and and counselling, you know, the question is, well, what is good good for them as a family and good for them as individuals? And you know, I would argue that you know maintain the ideal situation for the children and for the parents would be you know, a, a flourishing family relationship. Um, but that's obviously going to be controversial and, and, and some people won't. So when you say, it should an abusive relationship end? It should be taken anti-love drug to stop it. You have to ask, what is that relationship doing to the individuals? And if it's stunting the development of one of the individuals, if it's making that individual unhappy, even if that individual most wants to continue it, 
I think there can be good reasons to end it. So I, I think that, you know, wh whether you stand on the subject of objective distinction about value will heavily bear upon how you, you know, decide to apply this sort of science in, in relationships. Brian, what's your view? Yeah, you know, the longest chapter in the book is one that's titled Avoiding Disaster. And we try to grapple really in some detail with the, the potential abuses and misuses of any of these kinds of technologies. And, and there, there are some very difficult questions here. So to, to give ourselves some guardrails, we, we, in the case of what we call anti-love drugs, so any kind of intervention that's meant to degrade or diminish or obstruct one of these underlying subsystems, and so in the case of a chemical castration, for example, uh, we say, you know, the, the minimum criterion here is that if such a drug is to be used, it has got to be used under non-coercive circumstances. So, um, you know, if somebody uh, felt, I mean, just take, take an example. Um, if you had somebody with uh, pedophilic desires, um, you, you know, there are some people who would argue that you might want to, you know, coercively uh, intervene in this person's sexuality. And, uh, and this is a case where most people would agree that the desires themselves, very little good could come of them. And probably if, if uh, uh, you know, unaddressed, they could be very harmful. But even so, we want to be very careful about the idea of coercively applying something to, to a person's biochemistry to, to uh, go against their will or their own conception of the good. Now, there's certain other ways that we constrain people's actions. But, you know, giving drugs to somebody is, is a particular kind of thing that uh, we, we, we think should be voluntary. Um, so, so in the case of somebody, you know, a, a, a young person being administered drugs to try to stamp out their homosexuality or something like that within a conservative religious community, we, we put a strong constraint uh, against that, that we think that, that that should be impermissible. But there's a very interesting question about deeper values here. Imagine you have an adult who's in a, uh, a, a you know, a, a fundamentalist religious community, and they really believe that their same-sex attraction is something that, that puts them at odds with their relationship with God or something like that. Now, Julian and I are both secular people, and uh, we don't tend to reason through our moral philosophy in terms of what do we think God would want. But there's an interesting question about if there were a technology that could allow that person to diminish or even reorient their sexual attraction according to their highest values, what shall we say in a society about that? Now, uh, some people would suggest that there's, a, there's a, a structural problem here, which is that people who have minority sexual orientations have an, an unjust and asymmetrical pressure put on them to try to change what they're like to conform to the majority. And so, so some would say it's best to just ban all of these kinds of technologies even from being developed, because if they were available, it might well be rational for a person in that position to take a drug to uh, eliminate something that's causing them to be, for example, oppressed in their, in their society. And so you, you may well have something that could individually help a person avoid what many regard as oppressive treatment. But then what you do is you, you, uh, you, put, you put an unjust uh, and asymmetrical pressure on them to do so. And so some people would say the best thing to do is to just ban these kinds of drugs altogether. But the deeper problem is, you know, what are the limits to, to the sorts of values people can have? Um, Progressive-minded people think that having a same-sex sexual orientation, there's just nothing wrong with that, and that people should be supported in being able to form uh, uh, flourishing relationships uh, uh, in accordance with their their deep uh, sexual attractions and desires, so long as nobody's harmed by those. Um, but somebody with a religious worldview, you know, I can try to persuade them that maybe their premises are, are misguided, or there might be a way to harmonize their sexual orientation with their religious worldview. But we think that you know, debating about whether a technology should be used or not is a bit of a, a, um, a proxy for the real concern, which is the, the wider debate in society about what our values should be. And so progressive-minded people have got to continue to wage the ideological battle to convince the rest of society that we, we must be accepting of uh, people who have, uh, you know, minority sexual orientations. Uh, religious fundamentalists probably just aren't going to agree with that. And so it creates a real problem for, for social policy. Well, let me, let me just, I mean, uh, so far you've been, th you've been, you know, talking about the problem in terms of, you know, some individual say in a, uh, you know, who, who has some sort of minority, uh, you know, view in terms of who they're attracted to and, and, and that sort of a thing. Um, but one of the, you know, the lurking worry here that I think a lot of people would, would be worried about is um, uh, 
the you know the powers that be the the government the you know the other structures um uh may impose like these drugs on other people right i mean it, yeah it's it's it, of course it's wrong you know you know coercion you know bad etc but that that's not the issue really that i'm trying to raise it's mm-hmm. just that um uh it can be perfectly rational from the perspective of the the society as a whole or or the culture or the subculture or the government if you want to put it you know in in those sorts of terms um to use these drugs to uh impose its cert- its views of of you know what the right sorts of relationships might be um uh on you know in, to impose them on those uh minority people how do you you know i mean that's a real danger you know once you have the tools you know we tend to use them and it may not be us in particular you know a particular individual but it could be the the broader society that uses them instead so again right. this is a general problem of you know the regulation of of these new technologies um so you know one of the worries with you know development of in- genetic gene editing for enhancement of intelligence or selection of embryos is the government could say, you know, you must have this genetic um, intervention. Um, It's good for your offspring and it's good for for society. And, you know, as a general principle, um, you know, people should only be coerced into doing something if they risk directly and significantly harming other people. So... Alan Turing should never have been forced to take medication for his homosexuality because he just wasn't harming anyone, regardless of your view about homosexuality. Now, I think that should be the limits of the law and what the government should be able to do, but I don't think that should shortcut a discussion about what values we think our society should be guided by and there should be a flourishing discussion and we should encourage diversity um, and we may even say certain, we, you know, I think it's entirely correct for the government to take a position on what ought to be encouraged, but not forced. Um, and so I think that, you know, if we have this strict liberal harm principle and allow people to ultimately make their own choices about reproduction, but also about alterations to their biology, that's a, a, a very kind of strong safeguard against the sort of abuse that, that you're describing that, that has historically riddled this sort of field. A parallel question comes up in the, in the debate about moral enhancement. Some people say, well, you know, who's, who's going to be in charge of deciding what moral improvement really is as opposed to something else? And should it be the government that's, that's imposing these kinds of uh, norms? And you know, there too, uh, there's, there's a stronger argument to be said that if somebody were to, to, to try to voluntarily improve themselves morally, uh, again, if they're not uh, harming people by by uh, 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 objectively agreed upon standards by the wider society, no one would say that if I went to a spiritual retreat or you know uh, practiced uh, some kind of uh, uh, you know uh, religious practice or um, tried to improve myself by reading moral philosophy, if 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 I want to try to improve myself morally, there are going to be people who may disagree that my concept of the good is is the right one. But it, it, it would be hard to say that I shouldn't be allowed to try to improve myself according to, to, to my highest values. Um, and there is going to be debate in society, and it's probably good that there's debate because the prevailing view might turn out not to be uh, the best supported one or the one that can withstand criticism through, through public discourse. And so there's always going to be this question of, you know, uh, how, how do you figure out what are the values that should be guiding any given program and who is the one who should be making that judgment call? I'm not sure that that's a unique concern with respect to relationships, but as Julian suggests, I think this is the general kind of problem we have when it comes to uh, um, political theory and and public policy, is how do you uh, allow room for people to negotiate values in the public sphere and also make personal decisions in their own lives? Okay. Um, so what, what exactly does drug, you know, the use of drugs, I mean... Um, you know, it sounds like, oh, well, you know, we have this benign other element to, to add to the mix to improve relationships and that kind of a thing. Um, but obviously, you know, you're, you're advocating something that does strike people 
as you know uh, at least that's that's going to certainly uh raise hackles in in some quarters um and maybe it's you know you you talk about the problem of you know pathologizing relationships or the problem that somehow it's it's not natural things like that um what is it about drugs and you know we're talking about you know neural neurochemistry basically um what is it about that that somehow seems to uh be objectionable you know to to helping support romantic relationships i mean people have in general and this is particularly prevalent in in doping in performance enhancement in sport this nature bias you know they, they'll accept what are perceived to be naturally biologically ap- active substances like caffeine which which increases time to exhaustion by 10 percent or they'll accept um, increasing the red blood cell count by training at altitude or even by lowering the concentration of oxygen with a, with a hypoxic air tent, but they won't allow something that involves a needle or that appears to be unnatural. So they won't allow the administration of exogenous or, or, um, or extra erythropoietin or EPO, or they won't allow blood doping through blood transfusions. Because people draw this sharp distinction between naturally occurring substances and engagement with nature. So if you have a, had a, a substance that was present in a plant, people would be entirely comfortable with taking that as a love drug. And, you know, they're probably more going to be more comfortable with taking, you know, magic mushrooms than a psilocybin pill. Um, but this is a deep misunderstanding of the effect of chemically active substances the mode of delivery makes no morally relevant difference. Yet people have in their minds the idea of, you know, heroin addicts comatose in the in the in the in the street, you know, as a result of taking drugs. And so once it becomes administering through a pill or even worse, through an intravenous route or by surgery or by some sort of um, uh, brain intervention, they they have much stronger objections, and and I, and I think that's a deep a deep misunderstanding that cuts across the whole enhancement debate. At the end of the day, what matters to us is our minds, and what determines what happens in our minds is what happens in our brains, and what happens in our brain is the result of various influences, um, but ultimately the result of electrical activity between neurons that can be influenced, you know, directly biologically. So the question is not, um, you know, how it arises, but what are its effects and, and what are the morally relevant effects that we should want and, and aim for and, and what we should aim to reduce. I, I think this last so, point, that if I could just add one thing, uh, that Julian says, what are the effects? That's, that's where our conversation really starts and ends in the book, is this is a call for research into the interpersonal effects of different drugs. And we, we say we should start with the drugs we're already prescribing. So the thought is not that we're, our recommendation, what we advocate, isn't actually that anyone should take any drugs. What we're saying is for drugs that are already being administered, it isn't enough just to look at the, the target effects that we're hoping they're have, having and ignoring uh, you know, side effects, which may include side effects on relationships. And so if it turns out that there are drugs that by interacting on a complex biological system actually don't improve it in the desired way, or all things considered, they have negative side effects, then we would say that they, they shouldn't be used. But the point is we're, we're operating from a place of, of ignorance here because uh, we, we simply don't adequately study the interpersonal effects of currently used drugs, and we don't have procedures in place to study the interpersonal effects of drugs that are coming down the pipeline. So partly it's just a call for a relational shift in scientific research norms. And then if it turns out that there are some couples where, uh, you know, under the right conditions with maybe drug-assisted psychotherapy, and we can figure out which, which couples have which kinds of profiles that are, that are more susceptible to, to positive outcomes, all things considered, versus negative outcomes, well, then maybe those couples should be eligible for, for using this drug in the future. But right now, we just don't know which are, the, which are the drugs and which are the doses and which are the couples who might be helped and which are, which are the situations where these drugs may be harmful. And it may be that many or most of them are harmful, and we should be attentive to that too. So, I mean, there's a number of different questions that are coming, springing to mind. Um, but one, one is, uh, 
the idea that um, it's, I mean, Julian had said something like it's, you know, the way it's administered that is making the difference. But I think a lot of, for a lot of people, it's, it's what the drugs do, the way they alter the neurochemistry that, you know, is making, I mean, maybe, maybe this is exactly what you're saying is like, it's, you know, a, a, a you know, training at a high altitude affects your neurochemistry. Taking a particular drug affects your neurochemistry, and there's really no, there's no uh, relevant difference between those two. Is that is that sort of well, what there, you're what you were there, saying? There can be. I mean, so what people fear is we'll become like robots, yeah, that where you know our emotions and even love will be purely determined by a pill, or even worse, if you put a chip in somebody's brain and just made them love somebody, then that wouldn't really be love. And by going down these direct biological routes, we're creating something that's inauthentic. It's not really love. It's not genuine. It's not their own. And if you, you know, need a drug to keep you, you know, in, in a relationship with somebody, it's not really a relationship. And, and that could be true. You know, there could, there could be such drugs and there could be, you know, brain interventions and chips that, that actually do undermine our agency and, and undermine the nature of our love. But that's not what we're talking about at the moment. What we're talking about at the moment are augmenting natural processes. So, you know, we produce oxytocin um, and, you know, the, the level of production of oxytocin may not be the optimum to achieve our goals. And so increasing your oxytocin is like increasing your blood glucose when it's low because you haven't been eating. Um, so you, it depends on the precise intervention. And, and I guess what our central claim is that, yes, um, love drugs can undermine relationships, but they can also enable people, particularly when they're combined with psychosocial interventions and engagement with the other and the world, they can enhance our appreciation of the world just as getting enough sleep can enhance, you know, your ability to function in a relationship or engage with the world. So, you know, again, people have this in practical ethics, have this very simplistic view that, you know, there is one love drug, it will apply to the whole of love, and it's either good or bad. There are lots of different kinds of love drugs that will affect different phases of the relationship that can be used in different ways that may or may not undermine our agency or the authenticity of our love. I think maybe one concern that people have also that's that's behind some of the skepticism is a, is a genuine recognition that biological systems are complex and they also came about through a process of evolution by natural selection rather than a, a blueprint designer who uh, in, intelligently mapped it all out in a way that we can easily reverse engineer. And so there is uh, uh, there's a paper by our colleague Andrew Sandberg, I think with Nick Bostrom, called The Wisdom of Nature. And the the point that they're trying to make is just that we should be very attentive to the fact that we have an epistemic limitation here. We're doing our best to try to figure out what is the, the logic of these systems, how do they work, what are the causal factors at play in our neurochemistry. But it's pretty easy to, to mess up a complex system by intervening in it uh, when you don't fully understand how it works. Nevertheless, you know, that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to learn how the complex system works and find out if there are some cases where we may be able to fruitfully intervene in it in a way that, that promotes our, our, our values. And, and, and in terms of there being complex systems, this is something that is not true just of biology, but it's, it's also, of course, true of cultural systems. And, and this is where I think the tension between uh, conservatives and, and progressives play, plays out, it, both, both in the world of uh, uh, politics, but also what are sometimes called bioconservatives and, and bioprogressives or, or bioliberals. So here's, here's the basic you know, tug of war between them, where they both have an insight. Conservatives say... Uh, both in terms of biological systems and in terms of cultural systems, these are things that came about through a process of tinkering. They weren't intelligently designed. And so it might be that they're solving certain problems for us or working in some sort of way where, where we don't quite understand the, the, the logic behind them. So if we just go willy-nilly intervening in any of these complex systems, we, we might well mess them up or we might think that we're improving them along one dimension, but in fact, we're causing all sorts of unanticipated harms on other dimensions. That's a conservative insight and that's a good insight. And then the progressive insight, which is also important, is 
Um, just because something's been a certain way for a long time doesn't mean it's it's good. It doesn't mean it's optimal, and it doesn't mean there aren't ways in which we can improve on on certain systems. So socially, when you talk about moral improvement, um, that that's premised on the idea that just because a culture has been arranged in a certain way uh, doesn't mean that that's uh, optimal. There may be injustices that are embedded within the current design and so forth. And biological systems, which, as Julian pointed out earlier, didn't didn't uh, evolve to promote our flourishing in the modern world. Uh, they they evolved to promote our the survival and reproductive of our an- uh, reproductive success of our ancestors. Well, it might be that there are some you know progressive tinkerings that we could try, but it's not one or the other. It's not let's just rush in there and you know throw drugs at our biology and and, and hope for the best. Nor is it let's never intervene in our biology because you know nature knows best. It's going to be some something in between. Okay, well that was that kind of touches on a question I was going to raise about. Um, unintended effects, which not, not really side effects, um, but more just the fact that, I mean, as you know, the, the neuro, as you just sort of basically said, the, the brain, the neurochemistry of the brain, I mean, everything is all, it's a complex system. So it's not as if, I mean, the, the title of the book is Love Drugs, but of course, the drug just targets maybe a particular neurochemical, but it certainly doesn't target uh, that, but the neurochemical doesn't, you know, isn't isn't restricted to one particular, like, you know, romantic relationship. So it's not like, right. uh, <laughs> this isn't. There's no um, love dial in your brain that you can just fine tune by applying some drugs. Yeah, that's right. There's no, you know, sort of this 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 little module over here is the one that you know we can target um, for love relationships, and you know we just kind of put a drug in there and and that's it. I mean, so. You know, anytime you start altering neurochemicals, all kinds of different things are going to happen, and you you you've just acknowledged that. Right. But the problem is, it means that the whole idea of a love drug itself is is kind of more reductionist than you actually believe. Well, right. I don't think the right again. That's a, a general problem of intervening in any biological system to increase one aspect of cognition. It could have unintended consequences, and and the and the right response to that is is to do is not to stop it. And and one thing's for sure: this is going to happen. It'll be one of the biggest revolutions that that humans you know have undergone. Um, you so you won't be able to stop it, um, but. It's not just a matter of studying it as we mainly describe in the book within, you know, a sort of counselling environment by, you know, seeing whether we can very tightly control the use of the drug and combine it with, with various psychological interventions. The challenge will also be to, to study it widely in society, ecologically, and look at what's happening in lots of different aspects because there's bound to be unintended consequences but the response to unintended consequences is is to try to understand them and and to try to flexibly respond in terms of your policy or use or um, set of guidelines around that intervention. So you know I think this is a challenge that's going to apply. The more and more we use powerful technology, the more and more good we can do, and the more and more harm we can do, and the more and more we invite unintended consequences. And you know the the answer to that is just do more research that has the right set of values then that requires ethics and philosophy and that is good science and proceed in a staged way and be prepared to change course as you get more evidence. But you will never have certainty. We live in a probabilistic world and, you know, this is going to be probability writ large, to, to use the phrase I had before. Brian, what's your view? Yeah, I, I think uh, on the matter of side effects, um, one further point to make is just that sometimes we we acknowledge that a technology has certain adverse consequences, but we might nevertheless think that all things considered, it's it's uh, uh, beneficial for us. So this is an example that's a controversial example, but just take uh, hormonal birth control. Um, you know, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that hormonal birth control can have a lot of negative effects for a lot of women, including uh, depression is a, is a very common uh, side effect and, and all sorts of, um, you know, un, unwanted outcomes of, of intervening in the hormonal system. So for some and maybe many women, the best thing to do might be to not uh, take hormonal birth control at all. And there are other forms of uh, birth control that can and, and should be employed for people who prefer them. 
But there still might be some women for who either ha- have a different set of effects because there's al- there's always going to be a, a, a drug by person interaction. You know, you don't just get one uniform effect of any drug. There might be some women who who acknowledge that there are certain kinds of side effects, but who all things considered find that the use of this technology allows them to live their life in a way that's more consistent with their flourishing, all things considered. And so one, we should be on the lookout for what are the side effects and we should acknowledge when they exist. And, and again, that's that's the that's the kind of conservative thesis of our book is we're already using all sorts of drugs. We're using hormonal birth control. We're using selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. I mean, that's a massively widely prescribed drug that is having all kinds of effects, including many unintended effects, many unintended side effects, including many of them that may be harmful. So, so the, the, the cautious program is just to say, you know, you're right. There is no love dial in the brain where you can just target it with some particular drug that's only going to have an effect on, on our romantic neurochemistry. But uh, from the other perspective, we have drugs that are used for, for other purposes, or so we think, that are having side effects on our romantic neurochemistry. And we should be aware of what those are. But there's never going to be one kind of general solution to these things. There are different drugs that have very different effects uh, on different people under different conditions. And, and the, the first thing we've got to do is, is to do the research to find out what are those effects. The answer probably isn't going to be that there should never be any drug-based medications given to anyone under any conditions. Probably there's going to be some conditions where, where people are going to, all things considered, benefit from the use of a drug. And there's probably going to be some cases where that's true for relationships too. And the point is to figure out which are those cases where, all things considered, the benefits outweigh the harms. Okay. So one last sort of uh, substantive question, I guess. Um, uh, so I, I know there's been work in, I think it's called ignorance studies, or at least I know like by Janet Karani and, and some other people, that um, if, you, if you know the context in which certain scientific research is being undertaken, um, that should stop you from actually undertaking what seems to be a purely scientific question. Right. So for example, um, uh, you know, arguments against, you know, why should we... What's, what's the deal with looking into, um, you know, gender differences in the brain or race differences in intelligence or anything like that? The argument is, you know, this research does not take place in a vacuum. It's not just like, oh, let's just, you know, find out what it is, you know. Uh, let's just see. It's, it's more like we, the research is taking place in an impure environment where the science can predictably be known to be used in ways that are, that, that again, one would think of as being unethical, right? This, this is not you know, like pure conjecture. It's like, this is the society we live in, and this is the society in which science operates. So the objection here is a similar sort of one where you might say, um, you know, if we're, you know, if there's just some knowledge that we shouldn't be investigating, uh, not because, you know, we want to restrain scientific investigation, but because we know we're in a social context in which that um, knowledge is very apt to be uh, misused. Yeah. So, I mean, if, if someone were to make an argument of this form, um, if we were to, in a concerted way, try to find out what the interpersonal effects are of drugs that are currently used or drugs that are being tested for other purposes, this would predictably lead to very negative social consequences, just given facts of the matter, you know, how people are, how societies arrange, how people tend to respond to scientific findings and so forth. Um, you know, they'd be making a slippery slope argument, basically. You know, if, if we were to do A, it would predictably lead to this bad thing B, therefore we shouldn't do A. And slippery slope arguments are just as strong as the, as the, the, the gradient of the slope. So I, I'd want to hear what that argument is, um, but it can't be made in the abstract. Someone can't say, you know, these drugs might be used in a bad way if we learned about their effects, and so we just shouldn't find out what their effects are, because someone could equally say, there's really bad effects if we don't find out what the uh, side effects of these drugs are on relationships. And in fact, that's my view. So so I, I keep coming back to selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. These are helpful for some people, and there's a subset of people for whom their their helpfulness in terms of depression is, you know, can be the matter of life and death. 
but they're also a very commonly prescribed drug that has, uh, you know, can have very negative effects on libido, for example. And that's something that's more or less well understood. But there's also evidence that uh, SSRIs can have a blunting effect on people's higher order emotions. So for example, your ability to care about the feelings of other people can be blunted in certain cases. Now, right now, we just have kind of a handful of anecdotes about this uh, coming out of the case study literature. And we have some theoretical reasons for thinking it's probably a more widespread phenomenon. So let's just suppose that's true. Let's suppose it's true that SSRIs, which are very widely prescribed, are currently uh, having you know, disruptive effects on, on some of the most important relationships in people's lives, causing people to dissociate and, and fail to adequately uh, care about the feelings of their partner. That, you know, failing to find that out is the sort of thing that seems to me that, that, that could have very bad consequences for society. So, so there might be an argument that merely investigating a phenomenon could, when you know, conjoined with other facts about the way society works, lead to bad outcomes. But that argument would have to be made in very specific terms. And then we have to go look at all the steps along the slope and, and so make sure it wasn't a foothold. Can I, can I amplify that? I mean, I, I, this is where I think that argument is plausible. So in 2012, I, I wrote a book um, on moral enhancement where with Ingemar Persson, I said that I personally think the biggest threat to humanity is a biological event. And what we talked about there was um, producing in you know, a small backyard laboratory um, using synthetic biology, something like smallpox virus or genetically modifying it, making it you know 100% lethal. Um, but we're in the midst of this massive COVID-9 pandemic and there is some discussion about whether the virus was directly manufactured. I don't think that's true. But in Wuhan, another possibility is that it escaped from a biological research, possibly biological weapons facility in, in Wuhan. Now, um, I think that there's some credence in that. I think that the, the publication of research aimed at producing biological weapons or so-called gain-of-function research, um, the US military was funding research in, in Wuhan looking at the transfer of coronaviruses from bats, and a lot of research that they were doing there was so-called gain-of-function research to be able to show how viruses can cross from being transmitted between animals to humans. That kind of research, I think, can predictably lead to mass extinction events and its publication ought to be strictly controlled. And I think we've been too lax in the publication of that kind of dangerous research, gain-of-function research, genetic modification of viruses, blueprints for constructing viruses such as the 1918 flu. So I'm completely on board with the idea that we need to have some control over science. I just don't see any evidence whatsoever to support the idea that this kind of research into human relationships and their enhancement would have those sorts of effects. And as Brian said, you need to tell a credible story. And so I think, you know, these arguments can be quite plausible in certain circumstances and, and implausible in others. It depends on the facts. And if somebody was able to provide facts on how this research was going to be used to subjugate large tracts of the population or, you know, cause mass extinction events, then I'd be supportive of restricting it. But at the moment, you're talking about one of the most important factors that determine our happiness or unhappiness, one of the most important aspects of life. And I don't see a reason that we shouldn't be studying it. We need to be guided by values. Um, but this isn't like gain-of-function research in biology. And also just one, one small point to add. I mean, uh, the other big point of this book is, is a call to an, an ethical debate in society and also a heads up to policymakers that given that these technologies, I mean, first of all, so love drugs exist, whether we want them to or not, as we say, through the side effects of currently existing drugs. So the technology is already here. And our point is, you know, we want people to raise those stories. If they say, here's, here's a slippery slope and I've got some good evidence for, for how, it, how this will play out. Well, good. Then we can we need to put certain policy uh, guardrails in place, or we may, may need to stop some research and, and allow other research to continue. So we don't have the final answer about how this should all play out. But we think that this is a this is a serious ethical conversation that's urgent because these technologies are already affecting our relationships in ways we're not fully aware of. And if somebody has a good argument, as Julian says, that uh, you know certain kinds of research would predictably lead to bad outcomes, well, by God, we 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 need to we need to know that. And so that's that's why we want to have this conversation and to get you know 
a lot of different stakeholders from different parts of society and with different viewpoints on this uh, weighing into the conversation so that together we can figure out what are those societal risks and can they be uh, addressed uh, uh, preemptively. Okay, very good. Well, we are we are out of time. Um, so I'd like to close with just uh, asking what is on the horizon, what you're working on right now. Are you working together or separately? What's the what's your research agenda at the moment? Well, we've got a whole bunch of different stakes, uh, sticks in the fire. Uh, one thing I'm working on right now is a, a theory of moral psychology, trying to understand uh, why it is that we have very different intuitions in the context of specific relationships. So a lot of the moral psychology literature now is about trolley problems and abstract questions about utilitarianism. And those are important questions to ask, but most ordinary people aren't utilitarians. And so uh, with uh, some of my collaborators at Yale, we're, we're trying to find out how can we map out relationally situated moral intuitions and understand why it is that we, we feel very differently about certain actions when they take place in one relational context versus another. So that's one of my current preoccupations. And Julian's working on 100, 100 things. He can tell you about some of those too. So yeah, Brian and I and Jim Everett and Guy Kahane and, and a bunch of other people developed a scale for um, measuring how utilitarian people are. And, and I'm trying to develop that into a more general scale that captures um, common morality. I think one of the greatest challenges that you raised here is, you know, what sort of common morality should society be governed by and how can we measure that? And, and again, when it comes to, to children with callous unemotional personality or severe antisocial personality, they're put on drugs to try to control their behaviour. But we don't know what good behaviour is apart from reduction in impulsive violence. So one of, one of my projects is developing this moral enhancement work to look at developing a scale for moral development and morality. Um, I'm, I'm obviously working on gene editing. That's a hot topic um, that I've worked on for over 25 years, and I'm, I'm meant to be writing a book on, on gene editing and genetic selection. Um, and, and I've been doing a, a ton of papers on, on, um, on COVID-19 um, at the moment because that's, that's obviously a sort of needed area. And, you know, again, the, the, the bottom line of that whole debate is there is no you know, happy ending. <laughs> um, unfortunately, now people are going to die and it's a question of who dies and, and how many people die. And we have this fundamental tension in society of a commitment to equality and equal treatment for equal need, but also a commitment to bringing about the greatest good to the greatest number and saving as many lives as possible and often ensuring lives are as long as possible and as good quality as possible. And, and those two principles, utility and equality, conflict, and, and we don't know how to balance them. And we live under this wishful thinking um, kind of approach to practical ethics that there's some happy Hollywood ending where everyone will be a winner. But like with love drugs, there'll be benefits and risks, and it's a question of which benefits and which risks we decide to realise, and that should be on a, on a thorough and explicit consideration of our values and deciding, you know, which side of the fence we want to fall on. So really, you know, our book you know, encapsulates that approach that we need to decide what the values and ethics are that are going to govern, you know, how we evaluate the risks and benefits of these new technologies. Okay, very good. Well, on that note then, um, I wish to thank you both for a very interesting um, conversation and i wish you both luck with with those very interesting projects thanks very much you've been listening to my interview with brian erp and julian savaliscu the co-authors of love drugs the chemical future of relationships which is just out from stanford university press i'm carrie figdor this is new books in philosophy i hope you enjoyed the podcast and stay safe thank you for listening bye-bye